Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully glad to be joining uh, in studio with Jeff Verdorn, my favorite guest. And he has uh, brought his wife, Julie, with him because they're going to the Twins game later. So how cool is that? It's going to be a great night to sit at Target Field and watch the Twins hopefully win tonight. But in the meantime, we're going to uh, find out about a little bit about Jeff's trip to France. And then we're going to jump in to seven verses that every Christian should know well. Jeff, welcome to the program. Hi, Bill. So um, let's let's get a little recap of the trip to France. Oh, we had a great time. So, you know, this year is the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and we were going to go uh, during the anniversary in June, but, you know, decided it would be way too crowded. So we went a couple weeks ago, and we learned more. We saw Omaha Beach and Utah Beach and Point to Hook. That's where the Rangers, you know, had the grappling hooks, mm-hmm. and they had to scale this cliff to get up at these big guns and take them out. Because those big guns were a big threat. They would have just decimated troops and boats and equipment on the beaches. They could reach all of the beaches on the D-Day landing and and were a big threat. And so you have Germans shooting down at you and and throwing grenades down at you as you're trying to scale this cliff. I mean, and the, the, the spot is just unbelievable. All these hard points, these bunkers, these huge cement bunkers... But it had also been bombed by the Allies quite a bit. So there's these giant craters all over the place. I mean, it looks like the battle happened yesterday when wow. you're there. Um, then on the beaches, all, you, you get to sit in some of these bunkers and see what the Germans would have seen. Just this view down the beaches. And you can just imagine, you know, this huge machine gun and just mowing people down. I mean, it it just... Omaha Beach lost 95% of the men that landed on the beach in the first wave got killed. I mean, just just decimated. Um, and then we learned about the paratroopers. So this little town called San Mariglase, where uh, uh, famously in the movie The Longest Day, there is a, a soldier, an 82nd Airborne and paratrooper. Uh, his name was John Steele, and he gets stuck on the church steeple in the middle of this town, and they start shooting at him up at the steeple and gets shot in the foot, plays dead, and later got captured but didn't get killed by the Germans and then ends up escaping. Um, and to this day, the town still has a mannequin hanging from a parachute from the steeple of their church wow. in the middle of their town. I think there's more American flags in this little town still today than there are in most American flags in the United States. That's how grateful they they are in the Normandy area of France of, of what we did. The other part that we learned quite a bit about was uh, the, uh, the gliders that came in uh, after the paratroopers. In fact, we stayed at a little French uh, chateau place out in the countryside, and one of the gliders crashed into their barn, and we found a spot where engraved on the rocks was some soldier from New Mexico carved his name and date, June 6, 1944, and he crashed on that property where we were staying at and one of these gliders that came in on that day. So, um, And then we went actually from Normandy to Berlin. Uh, there's actually a 
marker where the march to Berlin starts, kilometer number zero. Well, it took the Allies 11 months to get there. It took us two hours in an airplane to get to Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then saw Berlin, saw some of the, saw a concentration camp that was there, uh, saw the Berlin Wall and some of the things that happened afterwards. And then in Amsterdam, we actually saw Corey Ten Boom. Do you know Corey Ten oh, Boom's story in the course. hiding place? Oh, and, it's the best. And uh, it's not as popular in the Netherlands as the Anne Frank House, uh, but I think it's a cool story. You know, a Christian family, strong Christian Dutch family, and they uh, they hid Jews. They trafficked about 200 Jews through their home to safety in some way, shape, or form. And then when they got uh, raided by the Nazis one night, they had four Jews and two uh, Dutchmen in their home, and they went to the hiding place. They never found them, but the Ten Boom family went to prison, went to a concentration camp, and they all died except for Corey, and mm-hmm. she wrote about it in her book called The Hiding Place. So mm-hmm. it was kind of this World War II, the guys, the Verdorn guys went on yeah. this trip. So Grandpa and a couple of my brother and our kids um, went on this trip. So we had a wonderful time. Nice. What was the most chilling moment you had? You know, you have to say there's a, a cemetery there right in Normandy, right near Omaha Beach. And, um, you know, famously Reagan has given a speech there and other presidents have given speeches there. Uh, there's about, I think there's 9,000 American soldiers buried there, all of whom died in the first 30 days of D-Day and the landing. And it is, uh, it's it's U.S. property maintained by the U.S., groomed uh, just beautifully. And it's quite a chilling sight to walk amongst those rows and see the thousands and thousands of men who died. What, what is it like being on that beach? It's got to be such sacred sacred ground. You know, the first time we went there... The tide was up. So the tide was right up next to the seawall on Omaha okay. Beach. And we were kind of disappointed a little because you didn't see those long stretches right. of beach that you see in the f- footage, Movies, right? Yeah. So we came back the next day at low tide and saw this long stretch of beach. And um, you can just pick. And then, like I said, sitting in some of those bunkers that are still there today and just picturing this battle that ensued that day. It's just I, I don't know how anybody survived the battle, to be honest. So it was it was uh, it was impactful. Yeah, great. I just wanted to get an update on that, and I appreciate um, hearing about it. Now, so today we're going to talk about seven verses every Christian should know and understand well. So, Jeff, I know we're going to try to uh, cram a lot in today. So let's get started. Well, we had I was doing a chart on salvation and looking at kind of some of the themes and subtopics that all have to do with um, believing in Christ and being saved. Mm-hmm. And I got finished this first chart this uh, with some boxes and some lines and diagrams and stuff. And I realized when I was finished with it that John 3.16 was not on my chart. It's like John 3.16, <laughs> that's the salvation. Verse. Right. How do you do a, a chart on salvation and not include John 3.16? I'm looking, where do I put that verse? And I realized the whole chart is John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I realized that was the chart by subtopic across the whole thing. So I kind of wrote the verse across the chart, and that became my first chart of one of seven and created a class called Seven Scriptures You Need to Know by Heart, seven themes from the New Testament using seven specific scriptures, of which John 3.16 is then, of course, the first. So let's look at a couple of the subtopics for each of these. For God so loved the world. And when you think about it, God's desire for mankind is talked about. Like in 2 Peter 3.9, he says, He wishes none to perish, 
but all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God wants all men to be saved. That's God's heart. He understands that man has a problem, this sin problem. So God, loving the world so much and demonstrating his love, sent his son to die on the cross for the sins of the world and now offers this salvation, this pardon, if you will, from sin to whosoever believes in him that he gave his only son. We know that John 1 says that that when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says that he was, Jesus was the one who died for all. And uh, I just quoted uh, Romans 5, While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 Timothy 4 says he is the Savior of all men. Christ died for my sin, for your sin, for every single person's sin in the world, past, present, and future, Christ died for those sins, that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes, this is, if you know one Greek word, this is my favorite Greek word because it's used all over Scripture, this word, believe, and it's pistuyo. The, the noun form is the, is the word that we get faith from, so believe and faith. Pistuyo, pistis is the, is the noun verb. But that is how we're saved, Right so that whoever believes in him, and this is God's command to the world, just believe in me. Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Acts 17, God is now declaring that all men everywhere should repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, John 6, 4. All over Scripture, this word is used, this pistuyo, if you believe then God will save you. And so that is the the, the proposition, the if-then statement. In my chart, I actually have a, a diamond. That's a decision point in flow charting, right? Mm-hmm. If you believe yes, you're saved. If you believe no, well, then you stand condemned before God. So let's do the no verse. Let's do the bad, bad news first, and okay. then we'll do the good news. So the no, if you don't believe, and I entitled this kind of sub- section, the many's response, because Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will go through it. So most people will hear this claim of God and and this command to believe in his son and reject it, right? So John 12 or John 5 says it this way, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. John 12 says they still would not believe. Matthew 23 says that you were unwilling to believe Acts 14 says the Jews refused to believe and rejected this message. Uh, Hebrews 12 says that see to it that you don't refuse it. I love Hebrews 4. It says the message that they heard was useless to them because they did not combine it with faith. And so what happens to the lost? They reject this pardon. They reject the sacrifice. They reject God's work on the cross that he did for them and so they will perish in the lake of fire and judgment of fearful that all that will remain then for the loss is a fearful expectation of judgment but there's good news if you believe in him this is what god says he does he says he saves you so what are the some of the components or what are some of the things that god does to a person the moment that he is saved well he says he washes you clean he forgives you of all unrighteousness he cleanses you Right? He says he makes you new. Second Corinthians 5 says he makes you a new creation. That's what being born again is all about. You're born once of the flesh, 
like John 3 says, and once of the Spirit, you're born of God, born from above, born of the Spirit, born again. That's your new creation. You've been made new. And the big one, oh, this is big, given eternal life. Who wouldn't want eternal life? And that's instantaneous, isn't it, you receive at the point of salvation? Absolutely. All these things. So God's work, the Greek for saved, is sozos, and it's in the the passive voice in the Greek. It means that God does all these things to us who believe. So it's it's the metaphor. Remember uh, Revelation. uh, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, faith, I will come in saved. Mm-hmm. If you believe, I will save you. So what does he do? He forgives you. He gives you a new life. He gives you eternal life. He seals you with the Holy Spirit. He justifies you, redeems you. He rescues you, and he gives you the right to be called his children. Oh, isn't that great? He gives us the right to be called his children. We're adopted into his family, and now we are sons of God. I love those last six words, Jeff, should not perish but have eternal life. Oh, you want to be one, someone that's perishing or someone that's having eternal life? That's, that's really the simple choice. And in Scripture, it actually comes up over and over. The broad road, the mm-hmm. narrow gate, the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. You um, have are no longer under, under condemnation. You are uh, free from condemnation or you have uh, still under condemnation. Um, over and over again, a lot of the parables. Do you want to be wise or do you want to be foolish? Do you want to be the one who's rewarded or the one who's sent where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Mm-hmm. Over and over again. Mm-hmm. Jeff Verdorn's in studio. We're talking about seven verses every Christian should know and understand well. John three sixteen can just be checked off our list. When we come back, we're going to jump into Galatians 2.20. We'll take a short break and be right back. walk-up music for Jeff Verdorn. He's in studio with me with his beautiful wife, Julie, and we are uh, chatting about the seven verses every Christian should know and understand well. And we just went through John 3.16, and we're going to jump now to Galatians 2.20, one of my very faves. Uh, yeah, so when you look at the big theme of salvation, and then the second, then we use John 3.16, now we're going to use Galatians 2.20 to talk about the theme of sanctification. Uh, how do we now live? We know we're saved by faith, but now we have to talk about how we live. So Galatians 2.20 gives us this verse that says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, on the surface, that verse doesn't make a lot of sense, right? It's like, what do you mean I have been crucified? I thought Christ was the one that was crucified. And yet, The Bible gives this picture that it says, we have therefore, for example, Romans 6, we are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too can live a new life. Well, what's the picture? 
The picture is, is that your old self, who you were before you were saved, this body, soul, spirit, we've actually talked about our body, soul, spirit concept on your show before, that old person has been done away with, and you've been raised in newness of life, born of God, born from above, given this new life, made new, a new creation, and raised with Christ. And so that's how the Bible actually describes that moving from death to life, you've been crucified with Christ, and now you've been raised with Christ. So Colossians 3.9 says that we have taken off our old self and have put on our new self, Colossians 3, 9, and, and 10. That's done. That's salvation. But then Ephesians 4 comes along and says, so therefore put off your old self and put on your new self. And it's like, well, wait a minute here. God just said that I have taken off, past tense, the old self, and I've been crucified, and that's done, and I have been raised to life. But now Paul's telling me in Ephesians to put off your old self and to put on your new self. And I think this is is all about our attitude. How do we understand this salvation that we have received? Now that we're saved, are we going to go live our lives following the principles of the world and the ways that we used to live? No, we're going to put that aside. We're going to put it off. We're going to put off the old way, the earthly way, the fleshly way. And we're going to live in the newness of life by putting on our new self and living in the resurrected power of, of Christ. Paul gives a number of do nots, but rather do this. And I think that helps kind of understand this concept. Do not offer your parts of your body as sin, as instruments to wickedness, Romans 6.13 says, but rather offer yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. Do not conform to the evil uh, desires you had when you lived in ignorance, 1 Peter 1.14, but just as he who called you to be holy, so be holy in all you do, 1 Peter 1.15. Do not live the rest of your earthly life for evil human desires, 1 Peter 4, but rather live for the will of God. So, even as believers, we can get distracted by the earthly things that distract us, right? And no one that I know yet that I've talked to in close to 20 years of teaching the Bible has ever answered the question, how many of you are living out that holy life perfectly yet? I've never had one person raise their hand. So we all struggle with living this out. And I think what Galatians 2.20 has said, your old self has been crucified. Let's live in the newness of life. That's what God has done. That's your new identity. So live it out. I've been, I've died to sin. Romans 6 says it this way. You've died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? And now God says he's made you alive in Christ. So the rest of that verse is, so I live by faith in the Son of God. Guess what? We were saved by faith. God wants us to live how? By faith. By faith. Galatians 2.20. So the next passage, number three, is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And this is one of these passages where, okay, so, so, you know, it's like, Jeff, what does living by faith look like? Well, here is the practical verse. And if I had, if I was to have one favorite verse in the Bible, mm-hmm. it's probably <laughs> Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, bring your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
This is my don't worry, be happy verse. Mm-hmm. Remember the song oh, by sure. Bobby Fair? Sure. You know that he was a Christian guy? I, I guess I did know that. He was a Christian guy, and I can't help but think, I'd love to ask him sometime if he had this verse in mind when he wrote that song, that don't worry. I mean, you almost have to start singing it as soon as right. you hear the title of it. I'm not going to do that. But, but this is my don't worry, be happy verse. So don't worry about anything. This is practically probably the single most important thing that you can do. If you're going to live by faith is to not worry, but to trust in him. So I don't know if this ever happens to you, but this happens to me that you got something on your mind and you go to bed at night and you close your eyes and you say your prayers and then, but your mind drifts off to this problem or this situation or this issue and you start dwelling on it in your mind and you're getting worked up and you can't sleep and you're thinking, what am I going to say and how am I going to respond and all this? And you know what? I think that's not living by faith. I think you need to take that issue and just say, Christ, I'm going to lay it at your feet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in you for it. And then, you know, as soon as you say that, it comes back up into your mind again, right? And you start worrying about it again. And mm-hmm. it's like, no, take that thought captive, give it to Christ, and just lay it at his feet. And then it's going to come back again and repeat it and just do it over and over until you've actually let it go and just say, Lord, I'm going to trust you on this, right? Don't worry. The Bible says, do not worry about what you're, about your life, what you will eat or drink or what you will wear. Isn't life more important than food, right? God says that he dresses the birds or the, the lilies of the valley and feeds the birds of the air. First uh, Peter 5 says it this way, cast all of your anxieties on the Lord. So I think one of the first kind of uh, subtopics of living by faith is not worrying. Cast your cares upon the Lord. Psalm 55 says exactly that. Cast your cares on the Lord. It's a good reminder, Jeff, that we need to be persistent, and it's not a one and done. So if you say, Lord, I'm going to turn this over to you, and then it pops back into your head, not to feel defeated, but just to be persistent saying, no, 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 I got to lay it back down again. I got to keep giving it to you until it gets diminished. Yeah, I've had literally situations where at night you're, you've, you've got to do that over and over and over again for multiple days okay. until the event. Until the event actually comes, and then all of a sudden, it's like it works out, and it's like, oh my goodness, Lord, how did you do that? And it's, it's just, it's not worrying, but trusting in Him. So the second, I think, key to faith. So I call this third chart of Philippians four the keys to faith. Faith is being thankful. You know, the, have you ever seen Veggie Tales? Uh-huh. One of my favorite songs is "The Thankful Heart Is a Happy Heart." Right? I won't sing that one either. Right? A thankful heart is a happy heart. God says to give thanks in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything, Ephesians 5.20. If you are thankful, truly thankful, we talked about Corey Tenboom. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing story in her book when her sister is being thankful for the lice. And it's like, her, Corey goes, how in the world can you be thankful for lice? And then the guards say, you should be thankful for the lice. It keeps the male guards away. Right? And it's just this powerful passage about being thankful in all circumstances. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, lots more with Jeff Verdorn. We're talking about seven scriptures that we all should know by heart and have a full understanding of the verses. We're going to go through uh, seven. We've got three down, four to go. I think we'll do it. We'll take uh, about 90 seconds. Be right back.
Welcome back to the show. I have Jeff Verdorn in the studio, and we're chatting about seven verses that every Christian should know and understand well. And we have, uh, I want to circle back, Jeff, because we're, we're, last week we were talking about Philippians 4, 6, and 7, but I want to talk about the contentment element that we should have as a result of this. I love when Paul says, I've learned the secret to being content in any and all circumstances. And I think this is one of the, the keys to faith. It, it's kind of the twin cousin of thankfulness, right, uh, is this concept of being content. Um, and Paul says this is, doesn't come to us naturally. He had to learn it, and he learned the secret of being content. Uh, Hebrews 13 says it this way, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. There is nothing wrong with being successful, but if you are pursuing the almighty do- dollar, I think you're pursuing the wrong thing. Uh, work at as at it with all your heart, with that with as in doing it for the Lord. Paul says, and I think when you do well, you will be rewarded and you will be blessed by God. And and uh, but I think it's it's that that true heart of contentment, right? The opposite of contentment is covetousness, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a sin, clearly a sin. Yeah. So we want to be content with where we are at and just trust in the Lord. That's not an easily identifiable sin to admit to. We don't say, "I'm greedy." I'm covetousness. I've got covetousness yeah. in my life. Yeah, envy, covetousness, envy, yeah. greed, it's all of those. We don't think of ourselves as envy, but we, uh, you know, follow, track your eyes, you know. Right. Oh, look at that car, man. Oh, yeah. I want that car, you know, whatever. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it doesn't come naturally for sure. Yeah, so if you just joined us, we're going through seven verses every Christian should know and understand and have a, a, str- a strong biblical understanding of these verses. We've done John 3.16, Galatians 2.20. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I think we're moving on to an abiding uh, scripture in John 15, 5. I love this verse, too. Yeah, so this is the vine and the branches in John 15, and I just picked verse 5. It's kind of the whole story, but Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So once again, we, we were talking about the two ways, two roads, two paths, two destinies. This is a clear story of exactly that. If you are not attached to the vine, what happens to those branches? They are gathered up and burned, right? And I think that's a picture of of perishing, of condemnation, of being thrown into the lake of fire. But for us today who are connected to the vine, we are abiding in him. It says that we will bear fruit. Now, not all vines bear fruit all the time. So the gardener, according to the stories, has to trim them and lift them up and tend some of these vines so that they will become more fruitful. Um, But make no mistakes. You are simply a branch. You're a fruit hanger. Mm -hmm. That's where God places his fruit. The branch can't do anything by itself. So as we live by faith, as we trust in him, he will bear the fruit in our lives. And it's fascinating. When you scan the scripture, you find out that actually God's told us this precisely in many different ways. Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and with all your mind, right? And if you do that, God says he will bear fruit in, in your life. Just as the Father loved me, I have loved you, so abide in me. Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Paul says it this way in Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him 
and he will direct your paths, right? Mm -hmm. So over and over and over, God says the first and foremost thing that you need to do is simply trust in me, abide in me, and then watch what I do in your life. Bear fruit. And then the fruit, I actually divide the fruit up into kind of two categories. The internal fruit of the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. So I call that the internal fruit in our heart, if you will. And the more internal fruit we have by abiding in Him, I think the more external fruit we will show, right? And then I, that's, the, I think, the good works. Ephesians 2.10, you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Um, I've been asked often, well, what are these good works? I, I, I think it's, it's unlimited to what you can do for God. Do you have an encouraging word at the right time? Do you have a scripture to bring to bear? Are you sharing Christ with someone? Are you sharing truth with someone? Are you helping them? He talks about feeding those who need it, caring for the widow and the orphan. I think any time you are doing good, you are doing some of the external fruit that God uh, wants us to do. I, I think the main one is sharing the truth of God and being witnesses, and we'll get to that. That's one of the other key verses. So that's God's fruit. And in fact, he says in 2 Peter 1, if you possess these qualities, the internal fruit, it will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your walk. So you want to do more for God? Don't get busy for God. Mm -hmm. We can generate plastic fruit, yeah. right? Trust in him, abide in him, seek him, love him. Just walk in faith in him and he will bear that fruit. Yeah, we don't bear fruit fruit. We're fruit. We're fruit hangers. Yep. We're branches on which God bears fruit through our lives. Yeah. And uh, you know, in the, uh, at the Bema seat, mm -hmm. at the Bema judgment, yeah. when we receive our reward, this crown yeah. that's pictured in, well, I think we're going to recognize that, Lord, you're rewarding us for the work you did in my life. Here's the crown. And as it says in Revelation 4, what did they do? They laid the crown at the feet of Jesus, casting crowns right there. Right where it belongs. Right where it belongs. Mm -hmm. So when I look at some of these fruits of the Spirit, and you've got some great verses attached to each one of these fruits, just a great, you know, it's just uh, good works, uh, love, joy, peace, of course, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then apart from me, you can do nothing. That's just mm -hmm. a powerful reminder that if you're not abiding, you can do nothing. You know, and I think about are you a patient guy by nature? No. When you are trusting in him more, do you display more patience? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to, you're supposed to say yes to that I one. I know I was supposed to. I know. It, and it's hard. We are not, some of us are not patient by nature. Some of us are not kind of uh, uh, self-controlled and gentle and kind, and we tend to be selfish and looking out for our own self-interest, and we tend to be self-focused, not others-focused. But you know what? I have noticed in my life, even though I'm not a patient person by nature, I know that I'm when I'm walking in Him and trusting in Him, I do, can, am capable of displaying more patience in my life. And I would agree with that, too. Uh, so I appreciate you saying that. And, and if I sit and think about it a little bit harder, Jeff, I'm going to, of course, say, yeah, I'm going right. to be a little more patient, of course, but I do have to take that first step of putting my trust in him. Absolutely. And he's the one. When you look at all these characteristics, all these different fruits, they all come from him. They are all from him. Love. We love because he 
first loved us. God is a God of love. And so each one of these fruits actually come from him. So if you want more love, joy, peace, patience, you have to go to the source of all these. And he is the giver of these internal fruits as we trust in him. Mm-hmm. And I love um, I love that we need to abide and in, in that that's just a great reminder. John 15, 5 is such a powerful verse. I just, I love this verse and you did a great job of explaining this, Jeff. Good. Yeah, it's it's one of my, uh, well, it's one of the seven key verses that I have in the Bible. So the next one is our... Can, can we, before yeah. we move on... I'm sorry. Um, I, no, 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 don't apologize. Um, but before we move on, I would love to talk about and remind our listeners, so I know we've talked about this in the past, what happens to a branch that is uh, pruned by the, the gardener? I mean, because we always think that that branch is going to be plucked away and thrown into the fire, but that's not the case, is it? Yeah, so this is, uh, in John 15, it starts out, if you look above, and, and uh, it is, and we've talked about this before, and it's so powerful that it, it's probably good to mention here. In verse 2, and remember, verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Verse 2 says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, that has been used to kind of beat up Christians for centuries, right? And if you don't bear fruit, God is going to cut you off. Mm-hmm. Well, we looked in the salvation verse in John 3:16 one of the th- one of the subtopics of that is that once you're saved you have assurance of salvation you're saved forever you can God keeps you in in his hands and you cannot lose your salvation so it it can't mean that he a believer that's not bearing fruit is cut off from the vine as as in that he's lost and going to be thrown in the fire and if you do a little greek study you'll see that that greek word is the word ario a i r o for cuts off but it really means to lift up, right? So let me change the reading of this with that definition in place. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, that's precisely what a gardener will do. If you've got some grapevines and one of them's down in the dirt, you what are you going to do? You're going to lift it up, tie it up off of the trellis, trim it, prune it a little bit so that it might become Fruitful, And that, I think, is the actual picture that God's given us in John 15. Not this hammer, this threat that if you don't bear fruit, I'm going to cut you off. No, he says, I'm going to lift you up so that you might be more fruitful. Mm-hmm. The listener just chimed in, Jeff. Is, is the only fruit people coming to Christ? No, I think that, like I said, the internal fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace of God that you have in your heart, and the external fruit, Think about all of the, for example, what are all the one another's in Scripture to serve one another, love one another, bear each other's burdens? All of those things, when you do that, I think you're bearing good fruit for God within the body of Christ. You're building up the church. And obviously for unbelievers, the biggest fruit of all, the biggest grapefruit hanging on the tree, if you will, is the salvation of a soul. All heaven rejoices when one person turns to God in repentance through faith. Love it. All right, let's move on to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. So this is the spiritual battle chart. So Ephesians 6, 12 is that passage that says, therefore put on the full armor of God, right? So that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. So there's this picture, maybe guys 
get a little um, uh, affiliate with this passage, maybe a little bit more with women, because we tend to like armor and, you know, war and battle and stuff like that. But once again, just like the fruit of the Spirit, everything that's in this armor is from God. So the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit, uh, these are all from God. He has dressed us. And I know I've heard some comment, uh, commentators say that, you know, I dress myself every morning, you know, to go out for battle. Uh, you know, fine word picture, but know this, that once you were saved, you were dressed for battle. God dressed you. Um, now, you can appropriate it. You can understand that I'm dressed, and but you, there's nothing you have to do. God has armored you for this world. Why do we need armor? Well, the world is an evil place. It says that, so when that day of evil comes, well, what's the day of evil? Well, we know who the evil one is, and that's Satan. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that we should know his schemes. Well, what's the devil's schemes? I've broken, broken it down into three categories. Satan torments, he lies, and he tempts. And all the verses of Scripture that kind of relate to Satan seem to fall into these three categories. He torments, he lies, and he tempts. So how do we respond to these attacks, if you will, on the body? Well, he torments. I got some news for you. God's prescription for the torments of this world is like 2 Timothy 2.3, endure hardship with, with us like a good soldier of Christ. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Consider it pure joys whenever you face trials of many kinds, James 1. You know, because that's your first reaction when you face trials, right, is to rejoice. Right. Uh, but that's precisely what we see. For example, the, the, uh, the, the disciples, when they were persecuted, there's a passage in Acts, I can't remember if it's Acts 5, and it says that they walk away rejoicing, knowing that they felt uh, they, that, that God would consider themselves worthy of sharing in the suffering of Christ or something. I'm paraphrasing the passage. But, but remember that even though we face, we face persecution and torment in this world and that we may even die for our faith, and many, many Christians have been killed, have been martyred for their faith, God promises that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The world cannot touch you. The world cannot touch your eternal fate. It may destroy the body, but it cannot touch your soul and your spirit. That God has that. So remember when Jesus says, do not fear him who can destroy the body, but fear him, God, who has the power of your, over your eternal destiny, basically. So he does have the power and he can torment and destroy. And we see that destruction all over the place. World War II, when we were looking out in Normandy and stuff and all these graves, 60 million people died in World War II. Man, the evil one is active and alive. Wow. His second strategy is to lie. Well, how do we combat lies? With truth. With truth. We study the truth. So that's what we're doing right now. We are studying God's truth so that we don't... uh, fall for the lies of the world. I love the story of secret service agents who go into the counterfeit division. And what do they do? The first thing they do is not study counterfeit. They study the real thing. And when you know the real thing, you can spot the counterfeit more easily. Well, that's exactly what God says to do for us, to study his word. And that's uh, that's the next chart, so I won't go into there. The third one is to be tempted. 
Satan tempts. Now know that God will never tempt. Scripture promises that God does not tempt, but it's the devil who tempts. So what's our response to temptation? Uh, James 4 says to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him, standing firm in faith with the armor of God, uh, but also to flee. And there are instances where we should flee. And it can, you know, there's an Old Testament passage where, where Joseph, uh, Joseph is in with Potiphar's wife and he has to flee the temptation that is presented to him, right? So flee from temptation, resist it. Um, and so that's the devil's scheme. But remember, he is a defeated foe. I've read the back of the book, Bill. <laughs> we win. Yeah, I love that. The devil loses. Yeah. All right, let me take a little break. Jeffrey Orange in studio. We're going to get through the last two verses. He has uh, seven verses that every Christian should know well and understand well, and we're through five of them already. So I can't wait for the last two. We'll take a short break and be right back. to the show, Jeff Redorn's in the studio, and we're talking about great, seven great scripture verses we should all really know well and understand uh, thoroughly. And Jeff, before we move on to the last two, is there any wrap-up we want to do with John 15, 5? Well, yeah, when I think about the spiritual battle, just remember that it's Romans 14, 4 says, the Lord is able to make him stand. So stand firm in the Lord, stand firm in truth, stand firm in faith, stand firm in hope, but it's it's God that will, in fact, Second uh, 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 Chronicles 20 says, the battle is not yours, but the Lord's. Remember that mm-hmm. we are victorious. We are overcomers. We have overcome the world in Christ because he has overcome the world. So we are already victorious. The battle has been won. So that's a good reminder. That's Whenever we talk about reminder. spiritual battle. Yes, the battle has been won. The battle has been won, indeed. Yes, indeed, yes. All right, uh, we've got about nine minutes left, so we've got Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and First Corinthians fifteen verses three to five to cover, and then we've done something pretty epic. We've covered seven <laughs> great verses in in one hour. Uh, well, great hour, and I, these are I love all these verses. So Second um, Timothy three sixteen is about the Word of God, and and that all Scripture is God breathed, useful for teaching rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Who wants to be trained in righteousness? Me. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, if you want to be trained in righteousness, how do you do that? It's by through the word of God. So first, God breathed. God declares that the word of God has come from him. So we know that the book, 66 books authored by 48, 49, however many authors, over 1,500 years in three different languages, and yet it's one voice. It's one author, many penners, but one author, and that's God. So this is the inspiration of Scripture. Um, the word of God is not the word of men, but the word of God, First Thessalonians 2. 13. It's truth. It's trustworthy. It's flawless. It stands forever. It's perfect. It's a sharp sword. This is how the scripture describes it, and that it's God-breathed. I love uh, 2 Peter 1.21. It says that no prophecy ever had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's there's your there's a description of the inspiration of scripture. 
that all of this is from God. So you can trust the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, that God is the true author and the, 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 the voice behind each and every word of Scripture. So what are we supposed to do with it? Well, over and over and over, God tells us, again, a subtopic is to study the Word. If you want to be trained in righteousness, um, 2 Timothy 2 says, Study, be diligent, present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who correctly handles the Word of truth. Oh, that's, that is truly the desire of my heart in all of my teaching, is I want to handle the Word of God properly. Acts 2.42 says it this way, Devote yourself to the apostles' teachings. First Timothy 4 says, train yourself in these truths. Uh, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Every single Christian should be a theologian and concerned with proper and true doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. And I love Acts 17, and, 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 and Paul says about the Bereans, now the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they searched the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul says is true. So I remind my classes all the time, I am your tour guide to, to walk you through all of these passages, but everything you hear on the radio, from the pulpit, in a book, in a sermon, whatever, you need to search the Scriptures to ensure that what they are saying is true. And bo- you need to know what you believe and why you believe it from Scripture. So we're to study. And then when we study, We can share, always be prepared to give an account for the hope that's within us. That's the gospel. That's coming up next. But within the church, we're to teach others what we've learned in Scripture. So 2 Timothy talks about this sharing. I've studied the Word, and then what I learn and what I've studied, I share it with others. Um, And so that's this multiplying effect. Teach the truth plainly, admonish and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Right? Be devoted to the preaching and teaching of Scripture. Encourage others with sound doctrine. Uh, so over and over. That is what Paul means when he says contend for the faith. So I've got a subtopic here. To contend. When people teach false things, we should challenge them biblically. Right? So Paul says in Acts 20, this line, he says, I fear that once I leave, savage wolves will slip in amongst you and teach you things that not ought to be taught. I got news for you. There are savage wolves in the church today teaching things that ought not to be taught. And it's not unbiblical to challenge those teachers whenever we hear or recognize false teaching wherever it comes. That is contending for the faith. All right, Jeff. We uh, now are down to the gospel and 1 Corinthians 15. So we've only got about three minutes left, so let's get going. Oh, man. So the, so the gospel is presented clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. For what I, Paul says, for what I receive, I passed on to you first important. Now here are the components. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. We covered that in the first chart, right? That he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Peter, then to 12, and then to others. That's the gospel. Christ, who was from heaven who came from heaven, who was without sin, right? He who committed no sin became sin for us. He was the perfect lamb of God, spotless, without blemish, and he died on the cross. What does that mean? What happened on the cross? The physical death of Jesus was horrendous to die. Have you ever read a medical explanation of a crucifixion? Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrendous. But even more significant than the physical 
uh, pain that Christ endured on the cross was what happened spiritually on the cross, and that was that he died for our sins. And this was prophesied in Scripture, Isaiah 53, right, that he will that he will take upon himself the sins of the world, and uh, and and Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteousness to unrighteous to bring us to God. First Peter three fifteen says, so he bore the sins of many. Isaiah fifty three twelve says, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So according to the scriptures, Christ died. That's why he came to pay that penalty for sin. Uh, he was then buried. And where did he go? He descended into Hades. The Apostles' Creed said he descended into hell. It really is Hades, according to Scripture, according to the Greek. That's called that place is called Hades. He was buried, descended into hell, and Jesus told the the Israel and the world that when he's crucified, he will be there three days and then rise again. And all Christianity hinges on that simple truth that God proved, or Jesus proved, that he was God in the flesh. By the resurrection of the dead. Three days later, he walked out of that tomb. Death could not hold him. The grave could not contain him. And he rose again in power and in glory. Been a great hour, Jeff. Really been, really been fun. Good. You know, you know, I love when you come in and I, I, I don't say much because I don't want to say much (laughs) uh, when you're here. So, and Julie, thanks for coming in as well. Nice to have your wife here. It is. And you guys are going to the twins game tonight. So um, we are nice little reward. Uh, for the, for the night, and that wraps up our show. So thank you so much for listening and supporting Faith Radio. It means uh, just the world to us. And special thanks to Jeff uh, Verdorn for coming in and, and giving us these seven scriptures. If you missed any of it, uh, you're going to want to go to MyFaithRadio.com and start from the beginning. That wraps up our show. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.